Welcome back to another episode of our Eagle Perspective podcast. I'm Mike Siciliano, Dean of Students of the Upper School. We have a real treat today. I am joined by some experts in child and adolescent development, Sissy Goff and David Thomas. Welcome to you both. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. It's a real pleasure. I know you've spent a couple days in our community and uh, all I'm hearing, including from my wife who texted me earlier today with seven pages of notes (laughs) from your talk with some of our parents. So um, so she's... You're going to say all you've been hearing is how we've been eating tacos because we've tried to eat every taco we, in your city. Well, we'd be disappointed if you weren't. It's sort of our defining food here, right? Yes. Like it's you got to have. Do you have a favorite yet? A favorite you, place? I love city tacos. I love their fish taco okay. there. That awesome. That was maybe a highlight for me so far. Do you have it one? Really? What? The surf and turf was great I there. I can't go wrong with the surf no. and turf. It's pretty good. We've not had a bad taco in your city. We may want to talk about a real estate agent before we end. I mean, <laughs> looking at relocating. There's a, there's a couple that might be listening right now, okay. actually. So we'll, we'll get you connected Send with Send us some them. numbers. Uh, so you are from Nashville. Um, can you introduce yourself a little bit, just your backgrounds, you, some of your published work, and, and, and also maybe a little bit about what you do with schools and with kids? Yes, I have been counseling girls primarily and families at Dacer since 1993 when I did my internship through graduate school. I was, I'm, I'm from Little Rock, Arkansas, and had moved to Nashville to go to Vandy, to Vanderbilt yep. for grad school, and did an internship at Daystar. And I met with our dear friend and boss and was teary in my whole interview mm. and thought, I didn't know a place like this existed. Mm. So I have been stuck now since 1993. <laughs> so I don't even know how many years that is, 28 wow. years yeah. later. And we have a day star. We have individual counseling, group counseling. And then we have a little summer retreat program that I'm the director of. And I also run two groups a week, adolescent girls. And somewhere along the way, we started writing books, which was a fun extension of what we do too. And I think at this point, I'm I'm working on my 13th book currently. Wow. Woke up really early because my body thought it was Tennessee and <laughs> was writing this morning. And so in my last three in particular, as well as this one, I feel really grateful. I think God kind of prompted me pre-pandemic mm-hmm. with just what I was seeing so much that we can obviously talk yeah. a lot more about, but girls and anxiety. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote one. Actually, we had a publisher who came to me and said, I read that you talked about eight being the average age of onset of anxiety. Would you write a book for eight-year-old girls? And my response was probably, I think we're all pretty like-minded. I said, only if I can write one for parents too, mm, because I, it's not just a child a problem for the child. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. So, I mean, I, I, there's so much that I'm already connecting with what you're saying. I'm the father of a six-year-old girl, a oh, three-year-old girl, yes. so we're just getting there, which is why my wife took seven pages of notes uh, <laughs> earlier earlier today. So what are some of the books that, that you've read? I mean, excuse me. I'm going to say that over again. What are some of the books that you've published already? So that... Raising Worry-Free Girls would be my most recent for parents. And then I wrote a little workbook for elementary age girls called Braver, Stronger, Smarter awesome. that was so fun to write. And then that was pre-pandemic. And then we hit this pandemic and Zoom counseling, all of a sudden the population mm. I was most worried about were the teenagers. And mm-hmm. so I have never done this, but in six weeks I wrote a book for teenage girls because I just wanted to get them some truth. And yeah. so I wrote a book called Brave. So those have been my most recent okay. three. And then you said God prompted you with one and then gave you a pandemic so you'd have lots of time <laughs> right. to work on it. Oh, so, yes. okay. Uh. And David, what about you? I have been at Daystar for 25 years now okay. and came to Daystar through knowing this uh, amazing lady, my friend Sissy Goff, and we connected. I had really 
respected the work she and the team had been doing at Daystar, and we met to have lunch so I could hear more about it. And she said, oh, by the way, would you want to interview while you're here? So that was... No, no, no. Wait, that's not how it happened? No, David, you said, I'd really love to work at Daystar. And I said, I'm sorry, we're not hiring. <laughs> Those are two very different stories. I know, I know. <laughs> that's not how it went in my mind. Yep, sorry, you painted me better. And I went back to our boss, and she said, sissy... He sounds awesome. Of course we might be hiring. Will you call him back? <laughs> so I need to give Melissa all the credit, you need to not give you, Melissa right? The credit, not me. Well, I'm thankful that conversation happened because it meant I would end up in this amazing place working with incredible people. And the focus of a lot of my work over the years have been with boys and adolescent young men and their families. And my official title now is the Director of Family Counseling, and I do a lot of work we both do a lot of work with parents. We do parent consultations, which mm-hmm. is a bit like a well visit with a pediatrician where we just sit down with parents who are asking a lot of questions of, is this normal? Does this sound right to you? Yeah. Should we be concerned about this? And we love having that opportunity with parents in our offices. We love the, the gift we've been given to travel and be in amazing places like this school yeah. and intersect with parents and just talk about the stages of development and things that are happening with kids in different moments that I think can make the journey of parenting feel less overwhelming. That's a great hope for us. Well, we're really lucky to have you both here. So thank you again for for coming. Let's get into some of those issues. I mean, so we have, you know, kind of more of a focus on boys, more of a focus on girls. Um, This might seem like a really silly question, but, you know, so what's the difference? The difference between raising boys and raising girls and some of their challenges and, and maybe speak to a little bit what you're seeing. There are some significant yes, differences. There are. there are. And and I think understanding those really affects the whole equation. Not just how we parent them, how we teach to them, how we coach them, how we discipline them, how we engage with them. Mm-hmm. So when we teach together on boy and girl development, we go back and forth and kind of walk through different stages of development that the girl stages come from a great book Sissy and Melissa wrote together called Raising Girls and a book that I co-authored called Wild Things, The Art of Nurturing Boys. And one of the big differences would be that Sissy and Melissa could cover all of girl development in four chapters. Wow. Yeah. Birth through adolescence. I had to add a fifth chapter on because most developmental theorists agree that boys don't even finish adolescence until somewhere around 23 to 25. Yeah. And for girls, it's 19 to 20. And mm-hmm. so... That's an enormous space. I mean, that's five to six year difference. That means if we're really evaluating all of what we see with boys with that timeline in mind, I think we adjust and modify a lot of things. I think we send boys out in the world at 18 and say, go be a grown up. And he's not done with adolescence. And so I, I think all of those differences allow us to think differently and more intentionally, strategically about how we do all of life with them. What would you add to that? Well, yes. I mean, I feel like there's so many things you talk about with boys. It's fun to go back and forth like we do because David says so many things that I think, really? That's what they're doing? That's why they're doing that? And and I think there's so much we could talk about from a brain chemistry standpoint that is profoundly different from their earliest stages. So I'll throw out a few things and then you jump in with some things about boys. I mean, girls, you would say boys are hardwired for... Activity and movement. Yes. And I think for girls, girls are hardwired to connect. 
and to define themselves against this backdrop of relationship, Mm -hmm. which you experience at your house. Absolutely. Yes, from their earliest stages. And there are fascinating things going on. I mean, one is the occipital lobe region of a girl's brain is more developed than a little boy's her same age, which helps her, which takes in sensory data. And so I came across a study that I love that talked about, it actually compiled 100 different studies, and it said girls are better at reading emotions from facial expressions Mm -hmm. than boys. Earliest stages, girls actually prefer faces, whereas boys prefer mobiles because mobiles are moving, like we're talking about. Girls excel at eye contact as newborns. Girls are more attuned to human voices and actually prefer them to other sounds. Girls start talking a month earlier and have a larger vocabulary. Typically, by the age of about 16 months, girls will have 100 words and boys will have about 30. It never really stops for girls. It just keeps going. Like your life, yep. probably with all your. So girls. also, I'm learning that we wasted money on the mobiles over the girls' cribs. <laughs> like that wasn't that was There's apparently. A I wish I'd have known this six yes, years ago. Yes, so sorry. Anyway, yes, and girls are more imitative in their play. They're mirroring. They're interactive, and all of that is really dictated by their brain development. They also have more oxytocins being secreted in their brains, which is considered the nurturing hormone. Which is why we have a friend who has a really interesting story, and she got married at 40. Started having children. By the time she was 46, she had six kids. And she had, isn't that crazy? She had one set of multiples. And when her toddler age son was sent to timeout, wired for activity and movement, he was sent to timeout regularly, her daughter would take him snacks. (laughs) Because she was worried about him. She was nurturing. She wanted to take care of him. It's hardwired into who these little girls are. And so those things are all a significant part of, from their earliest stages, some of the differences in girls and boys. What would you I would only add to that great information on brain development that I talk about how boys have three strikes against them from Mm -hmm. the time the gun is fired and the race begins. Strike one would be that the female brain secretes more serotonin, which is directly related to impulse control. So she has these advanced abilities to regulate herself differently than he can. And strike two is that a little girl's frontal lobes grow at an earlier stage and are generally more active. And our Frontal lobes inform a lot of things, our executive decisions being one. And I say in summary, it's why girls tend to think first and then act second, which I think we'd all agree is a very logical series of events. And boys tend to do the opposite, acting first, then thinking, sometimes on the way to the ER, maybe I shouldn't have ridden my bike off that ramp or (laughs) jump from that place. And I love sharing Things like that, because that's a great example right there of how it allows us to think more intentionally. You know, I think if we if we sum up all of that information, you know, I sometimes think about the classic scenario of, you know, mom is in the kitchen cooking. She hears crying or screaming from another room. She walks into that space. It's her daughter. She's pointing her finger at her brother and saying, he pushed me. And we look at the boys we love, I think, a lot in life and say, like, what were you thinking? <laughs> and no. based on what I just shared. They weren't. Exactly. <laughs> he may not have started yeah. thinking. Was until, I supposed to be thinking? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Was I? Yeah. And I think my challenge there would be, let's consider throwing that question out. I don't think bombarding boys with <laughs> a question of what were you thinking? What were you thinking? What were you thinking throughout development is so useful a way to engage him because in a lot of moments he was just getting from point a to point b wasn't thinking and in that moment maybe just needed to move his sister out of the way and keep going 
So I think there's a better way to engage him, a better way to connect with him, to discipline him. Strike three, I mentioned three strikes, is that the brain stem in the, mal in the male houses more spinal fluid, which is yet one more part of what makes him so physical. So all of those things, again, reminders that he is a, a creature who's hardwired for activity and movement. And as much space and opportunity as we can create to honor that's a part of how God hardwired him, I think it changes the game. It yeah. really does. So there's a story that has come to my mind in listening to you talk. Uh, my wife and I, when when we had our, our first little girl, she was two, and we went to this really small church, and so we all kind of took turns watching the kids, right? Like we rotated families, and so my wife and I had had our day watching the kids, and it was about 12 uh, kids under five, age one to five, and it was pretty split in girls and, and boys. And halfway through, we're looking at each other and like the girls are sitting at the table coloring and talking <laughs> and the boys are standing on the table picking up their chairs and like we're just we're just like what is going on right now <laughs> like how do we and you know we didn't have a, a boy so we you know what how what do we do but what i'm what i'm piecing together is that's that's some of that is hardwiring yes, right like we were is. sort of destined for that moment it wasn't so much that we were terrible <laughs> at the child care that that's that's a little bit of the programming yes okay yes so what what would you say to um, to people who i mean there's there's so much out there in the world right now around gender and stereotyping and underrepresented groups. And um, are there people that you come across that say, you know, well, hey, if we define boys and girls in these ways where uh, we're playing into those stereotypes, um, you know, and, and like, do you have a response to those people? I remember a little pushback when we titled the book Wild Things and some parents who said, you know, I have a son who's not as wild. And I mm -hmm. love the opportunity in that to speak to, we're talking about a lot of boys yeah. and a spectrum of boys who are more active and some who are less. And I was even thinking when Sissy was talking about the number of words, we know some girls who are less talkative and sure. some who are more. Sure. And yeah some boys who are more talking. Right. So I, I think we always want to be speaking to the acknowledgement that yeah. as we talk about these ideas and a lot of generalizations that we're going to find the kids we love all along the way, you know, right. in terms of some who are more of these things and a little bit less. And I think certainly you, you mentioned sissy temperament. And I know a lot of firstborn boys who bend a little less toward you know, activity and a little more toward compliance. And I know some thirdborns who have all those fascinating things that yeah. we tend to see a right. lot of times with second and thirdborns. So yeah. I think certainly there are ingredients in the mix that could impact the equation greatly yeah. as well. And I think there is a, I have a sister who's 16 year, years younger than I am, and she has an almost three-year-old little guy. And with her, and even with her friends who have boys, hearing David talk, I think it feels to me like every parent who is hurting feels pretty alone and panicked yeah. right now. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so I think the parents who are pushing back maybe aren't coming to us. <laughs> <laughs> we, don't, we don't have yeah. as many conversations with them, but I think there is a desperation for who is my child and they how want to understand their kids. Right. Yeah. Right. And so yeah. to go back to the science of it, I think can ground all of us in this really helpful way to say, this is who we are. And this is, I mean, I love that old experiencing God study. It was, yeah. I don't even remember when it came out, but it was like, 
you know, what's God doing and how do you come alongside that? Yeah. And I think that's so much of what parenting is. Yeah. Who has God made your kids to be and how do you come alongside and further yeah. that? And so when there's information that feels true, I think it resonates no yeah. matter what. Yeah. And I think one of the things, I mean, I was thinking we do, when I mean, we teach this Raising Boys and Girls class back and forth, and sometimes we'll have parents who will come up and say, my daughter really aligns more with what David was talking about. And, and I have experienced, as we talk about, he talks about boys having such physicality to their emotions and activity and movement and all of that. And often for girls who have a lot of physicality to their emotions, there's something more going on for them. And, mm. and I'm not going to say every girl who sure, has more yeah. physicality has ADHD, but girls who have ADHD have more physicality to their emotions. And so I think if we were just to push back and say we're stereotyping boys and girls, we could miss sometimes a deeper thing that's going on yeah. for kids where we're not helping mm-hmm. them as much. And yeah. so even kind of going underneath it to, okay, what is going on? And, and might there be another reason rather than just let's push back against all the stereotypes? You know? Yeah, right. Well, I can, in, in my work with teenagers, I work with high school kids. Um, and Thank you. Like some of the things you said have just really rung true mm-hmm. in, in the last few years. Like you mentioned girls and anxiety. And, you know, we're seeing some of that and, you know, pandemic and all that I'm sure is a part of it. But talk a little bit about that. You said eight is often the onset of that. Yes. And what, what is cause? Is that different than 50 years ago? Yes. Okay. We wrote this, Are My Kids on Track book. I should look it up when we read it. I think like eight years ago, nine years ago now, if I had to guess, the statistics at that point were one in eight kids. Three years ago, they were one in four. I mean, it has changed that fast. Now we're one in three adolescents in particular, and girls are twice as likely. So one thing that that I hear when, so so kids come in and they sort of acknowledge their anxiety, and and sometimes we have a conversation with parents, and um, the word anxiety gets a lot of different reactions. Mm -hmm. Like, so some people will say, well, what does that just mean they're just stressed, right? Does it just mean they're, like, do they just need, like, a week off, right? Do they... Um, and you're using data, one in eight, one in four, one in three. Yes. It's not, it, it's not necessarily that we're getting softer as a community, right? It, it really is that the kids are more anxious than they were before. Yeah. Well, I would say there's two things okay. happening. One is I do think that language has become more of their vernacular. Okay. I don't think kids say I'm stressed anymore. They just go straight to I'm they anxious. They go straight to I'm anxious. Yeah. I'm not sad. I'm depressed. You know, I any of those things. I'm having a panic attack. Yeah. I had an emotional day. I must be bipolar. You know, they just use that language, but the reality is the numbers have gone up too, which is really tragic in my mind for the kids who are struggling with depression and anxiety, Mm. because now the words are being used up. And so no one hears them when they're really struggling with it. But yes, the numbers are significantly higher. Why is that? At this point, you know, I think, I mean, the pandemic has definitely made it worse. But before the pandemic, obviously, it was going up so much. And I I mean, there are so many things we could talk about. I mean, two of the primary ones, I think we are overscheduled to the degree that our kids are really suffering. I think there's just too much. I remember a girl saying to me, I had to ask my mom to stop scheduling activities for me. She was introverted and overwhelmed, and it was Mm. too much for her. So I think the overscheduling is a piece of it. I think the pressure that kids feel. Well, I was going to say there's pressure to overschedule, right? Pressure to overschedule. Because the whole college, you know, and the, but you got to do this club and this 
this oh. activity and this, right, that can be part of that. And I've, I mean, at least in Nashville, I've got to, t- to do tutoring so I can take the test to get in the right elementary school. Oh, my goodness. I mean, it's it's crazy. And so overscheduling and then, yeah, the pressure. And, and I think girls in particular today have this drive to pursue excellence in all things, whether it's athletic, it's artistic, it's academic, all the areas, and be kind and a good friend and look amazing on social media while I'm Mm -hmm. doing it, you know? And so I think those things combined with, I think parents are making it worse, very unintentionally, not ever meaning to, but I think that's, I mean, if I had to say probably the top three reasons Besides just technology in general, which we could have a whole other conversation yep. about that. Yeah, that deserves its own podcast. Three. I know, I know. <laughs> I would say those are the top three reasons. Okay. What are what are some ways that parents may inadvertently been be causing a little more anxiety or adding a little pressure? Research says that the two most common parenting strategies when a child gets anxious are escape and avoidance. So, of course, as a parent, your child's in distress. What do you do? Yeah. Because you love them, but to help step in and pull them out. Yeah. And so in all the research on the anxiety books, I came up with this definition of anxiety is an overestimation of the problem and an underestimation of themselves. Hmm. So if she or he comes upon this thing that he feels anxious about and I pull him, I've just said, yep, it's too big. Yeah. You're too small. You can't do it. You're not capable. And then it just gets more entrenched. And the next time, they don't do it again. Yeah, They're going to be less likely. I don't, I don't know if you would add, I'm talking about Oh, I would totally agree. I was even thinking when you were talking about the pressure piece, just before we left to come here, I drove by a sign in my neighborhood that was a sign up for flag football. Mm-hmm. And it said, three to 14 year olds and I had to stop I'm like surely I didn't surely that said three eight to 14 old. and I didn't see three. three but I backed up and it definitely uh, said three and wow. and I think that is to me such a picture I think with so many boys I experience a lot of anxiety in that space of performance a lot of anxiety around their athletic experience because that tends to yeah matter so much I laughed with a mom <laughs> In my office this week, she's like, I wish he felt a little more anxiety about school. I'd love to see <laughs> well, you know, a smidge I, more there. It's so funny that you say that. I, I, as I'm, again, as I'm sitting here listening and I think about the, the kids that, that come into my office with issues, like when it's anxiety about school, it's like 99% girls. Yes. Sure. Like exactly. I rarely have a, a male student come in and say, I'm just so overwhelmed by all these tests that I have. And, I, you know, um, but with the boys, what we see now is it's like we have a we have a sophomore that we have a conversation with and we say hey look you're you're gonna play some JV right now and it's like tears like oh, my yes. life is over that oh, I'm playing yes. JV as yes. a sophomore because oh, yes. you know I got a buddy over here that's playing varsity so that I don't know I, that kind of rings rings true you know with with what you guys are seeing it yeah. sounds like and and there again to our conversation a few minutes ago I could think of a couple of boys I'm working with right now who do have a lot of anxiety about school or about the ACT or their SAT score. So there's certainly going to be some who do, but generally speaking, mm, that's yeah. my experience too. But you put them in an athletic context that they care greatly about. And that's where I start to hear I'm having stomach aches. I feel sick. I'm throwing up before the game, those sorts of things. That's the space. And I think if we track it all the way back to the three-year-old sign up, the pressure that I think boys feel even in that space, I can't tell you how many middle school boys who will say, well, I can't play football. I didn't start when I was in fourth grade. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. Like, Mm. when did we decide that needed to happen at that age to determine what you'd be doing when you're in seventh grade? And so 
I think we've, much. you know, we've ramped up so many things in a lot of spaces where kids operate. And I think it just has been the pressure piece you've talked about. I've never had as many girls. I had one this last week who said, I'm disappointed in my grades. And I said, how are you doing? She said, I have a hundreds. <laughs> and she was so serious. I'm so glad I'm not the only one oh, that gets that. Oh my goodness. Oh my gosh. Yes. And yeah. there just weren't enough AP points to yeah. carry her through. You know, yeah, it's just, right. It's yeah. heartbreaking to me. Yeah. And the pressure I think kids feel about college. You know, Ugh. when we started this work decades ago, I rarely remember sitting with kids who were fearful they wouldn't get in. Certainly fear I might not get in my school of choice, but that I'll get in somewhere. We sit with kids all the time who are terrified, like no college may take me. You yeah. know, it's so competitive. My scores aren't high enough. Yeah. And I just think there's another place so, of so pressure. Like my joke with those kids is like, so basically it's either you're going to Harvard or you're being homeless under a bridge. Like those are your, <laughs> th- those are your two life options. Good luck. Right. Yeah. And that's sort of what they feel like. Yeah. So, so maybe here's a question because I, from my, you know, from my seat, it's a little bit of, of, it feels like sometimes kids don't have enough of an imagination of all of the possibilities that, that their life could possibly be like, like it's, it's like there's this way, that way, or unhappiness. Mm. Right. And I don't know if that jives with, with what you see, but how do we change their perspective on that? Like either as parents, either as parents or as a, as a school, like what can we do to sort of build that imagination and that maybe we'll settle some of that anxiety or that pressure? That's such a good question. I mean, as you're saying it, I think I love that you're saying what can we do as parents because I do feel like it's a little bit of a trickle down. Yeah. Because I think a lot of the kids I see, it's not necessarily Harvard or homeless, but it's these eight schools right. that I've been talking okay, with my Ivy family League. about. Ivy League well, or homeless. Or right. even it's some state schools sure. that are now really yeah. hard to get into. Yeah. And so I think I think we're not helping them get to a place where they see that there are more options. And not only that there are more options, but there are great options where mm-hmm. they could enjoy their lives yeah. during college. You yeah. know, So I think for us to think outside of the box, for us to be creative, for us to go back to experiencing God and who has God made your kids to be? And it mm-hmm. may be that they're not going to be a Harvard student. It may not even be that they can get in Georgia. Nobody's talking about Georgia here. But, you know, <laughs> I mean, I, I think to get outside of the box and think, I have two kids right now, there's – a church in Nashville that is an amazing church and they have started their own college. And I have two girls that are going wow. to that college and one of them's learning photography and the other one's going to working to be, I don't know, some kind of children's minister or something. And, and they're so excited and they yeah. love it. And I love that their parents got outside of the box a little bit yeah. to see something different. Yeah. I would add to that, that I think for all the hard things that have happened with this pandemic, one of the things we're grateful for is you know, we've never been in a conversation as a culture about mental health the way we yeah. are right now. Yes. You know, I, I'm so grateful. We're, I hate these were the circumstances that brought us to a place of putting a spotlight on that in the way I wish we always had. But I think we're thinking about well-being in a very different way than we did five yeah. years ago, ten years ago. And we're defining well-being and happiness and success and so many things differently yeah. and i think about you know i think about paul tuff wrote a great book called how children succeed yeah, you're that. shaking your head i do too where he talks about non-cognitive skills and you know when we interview people who report satisfaction relational satisfaction vocational satisfaction those tend to be individuals who embody the skills of well-being more yeah. than it is i make an insane amount of money you know i travel this much those sorts of things and so i've I would hope to your question that as as parents, we're thinking more about how we can, within our homes, 
define and align happiness, success, well-being yeah. in those ways that I think, yeah. again, all the way down to make us think a little bit differently about yeah. three-year-old flag football. Like, you know right. what, maybe we don't need to sign up for that. Like, maybe we just need to go to the yeah. park on Saturdays right. and <laughs> kick a ball around and picnic together as a family. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's almost like we have to have a little more of an imagination too of yes. how our kids could be happy, right? Yes. Like sometimes we expect them to do it the way we did it and it might look differently for them. Yes. Um, I'm glad to hear you say that about mental health. That was one of the other questions I was going to ask you is in the last three years, have parents' attitudes towards even seeking you out changed? Like I think, I feel like even five years ago, there's a little bit of a stigma of, you know, well, if I'm going to bring my six-year-old to a, a therapist – like, you know, there must be something really wrong, right? Mm. Um, has that changed or do you still encounter a little bit of that resistance or hesitation from parents to bring their kids in to do that kind of work? I feel like I rarely encounter resistance. I had one last week, which is really interesting. Okay. And, and it's yeah. maybe the only one I can remember in the last two years. Wow. Okay. That is not the norm. And I had a conversation with a parent recently that I loved. I felt like she was so wise and she sat down. And, and I mean, I think we get resistance from kids. Of course. But yeah. she said, you know, my daughter said, why am I doing this? Do you feel like something's wrong with me? And she said, no, I feel like our job as parents is to build your team. We have a great team academically for you at your school. We have a great physician in place with your pediatrician who's helping us with your body and your health. And, of course, we would have people on your team emotionally and for yeah, your mental health. And so Daystar is going to be your people, and we're just building your team. I yeah. mean, what a – Awesome. Yes. Yeah. I just think it's a beautiful response. Me too. Yeah. I was saying the same thing. Like, that's probably one of the great things that has come in the last decade that I've seen more of a shift than ever. And and – more parents who are seeking us out from a proactive posture than ever. Seeing check-ins with us at times like a well visit with a pediatrician. Like yeah. sometimes we go to the doctor when we're sick and we have a cold or a virus, and sometimes we go when we we're well just to check yeah. in. Yeah. Yes. And I love that 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 piece of parent consultations that we do. I love that parents are asking those kind of questions early into development in really thoughtful ways from that proactive posture. All right. Well, as happens sometimes, uh, we are talking way more, I think, than we anticipated because you're bringing so much awesome stuff uh, for us to talk about. Uh, so I think what we might do is end this as part one of our podcast. And do you mind sticking around and we'll do a part two? We'd be happy to. Okay. Awesome. So uh, thank you so much uh, to our listeners. Um, this is going to be the end of part one with Sissy Goff and David Thomas. Uh, you can check us out for part two on Apple Music or Spotify or other places that podcasts are found. Of course, we also have our video podcast if you want to see us on YouTube. And we'll be back with part two in a bit. Hello.